Hey, queer friends, are you ready to be inspired? Welcome to Season 5 of Coming Out and Beyond, a podcast that shares stories from the LGBTQIA community. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hello, folks, this is Anne-Marie Zanzel, and welcome to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA stories. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. She is a licensed sex and gender feminist psychotherapist, writer, researcher, researcher, and media personality whose expertise spans sex therapy, spiritual intimacy, parenting, psychedelic assisted therapy, and the healing of religious sexual trauma and social justice. She has been featured on platforms like NPR's All Things Considered, TV, TV, radio, and many podcasts to share her important insights and her revolutionary perspectives have been printed by Spirituality and Health Magazine, Bus Magazine, and many news outlets. Known for exposing the impact of sexual shame and trauma on our ability to attach to our partners and instruct our children to attach to theirs, Dr. Seller's book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy has been a global impact. Her latest book, Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise a Shame-Free, Confident Kids and Heal Your your Shame Too, was a new release bestseller in eight categories. She speaks throughout the world on how to heal and how to raise shame-free, relationally confident children. She can be followed on Instagram at Dr. Tina Shameless Sex. Hi, Dr. Tina. Welcome to the show. Hi, and thank you so much for having me, Emery. I'm so glad to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. Um, shame is a big topic I deal in my own practice with a lot of my clients, so I really want to dive into this topic. But first, I'd like to ask you, how did you become such a fierce advocate for the queer community? Well, it really began by having... Um, uh, I was housed in a Swedish immigrant family mm-hmm. that was very body and sex positive and people positive. And I had very and many members of my family, including my father, who were just fierce justice advocates in their life for people and people being treated well. Mm-hmm. And so that just laid the groundwork for me to be curious about people as opposed to judgmental. And I I had a lot of wonderful diversity in my own family growing up as far as how people did relationships. And and I think I I grew up seeing people as fascinating and their stories as interesting and valid. And, And so that just kind of led on in my life, you know, as I learned more and more and made more and more friends and had more and more people who were identifying and more and uh, more and more diverse ways. And, you know, I am, I was born in the sixties. So I'm sort of a sixties baby, um, which is a time that's very different. We, our country took a real hard turn in 1980. And so I think there was just a lot of acceptance in my childhood and curiosity about people and change and whatnot. And so I feel like I've been growing up as we've now come up with more and more terms that help people identify, I've been growing with those terms. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a a totally new term. Or, oh, that term would apply to all these people in my life. You know what I mean? (laughs) That I was growing up with. And so I feel really 
fortunate to have been alive during these decades, um, both for the work that I get to do, but also the celebration that I get to do with people as they are able to be more visible and more celebrated. And I get to be a part of that. And, and I love that. It's a wonderful part of my life. Well, what it, what I hear you saying is that it was just normal for you to have yeah. people that were having diverse experiences of life. So it was, it was your normal. It's like when I see the Gen Z's grow up today that like seeing representation of queer folks has been very normalized for them. I, I grew up in the 60s too. And I remember it was really big that they had a gay character on, on uh, what was it? Soap. Uh, yeah. You know, I remember those things, you know? Yeah how it was not normalized and now it's been more and more normalized. So that you had um, pretty much, you know, just normalized within your family. So this begs the question, how did you get into (laughs) feeling sexual shame, especially um, religious traditions, conservative religion? Yeah, right. That happened. A lot of times people come from those traditions. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And so people will say, is this your story? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's not my story, you know, but it's also because it wasn't my story that as I got exposed to the story, my heart literally broke. It just literally broke. And I'll often say I was probably in my thirties before I realized how odd my family was growing up because Mm -hmm. they were body and sex positive, but it was so normalized that you didn't notice it. Right. Like my grandmother wore a bikini until she died, you know, like, but that was normal. That was how it was, you know, and people were different shapes and sizes. I remember a whole group of Swedes came over one time when I was to visit my grandparents when I was like 12 and we're walking on the beach and one of my great aunts who was built just like me and I'm built like a tank, you know, she pulls off her shirt because it's 75 degrees in Seattle and she was hot. And so she just takes her shirt off and she's walking along in this, you know, industrial strength bra, you know, and her clothes. And there nobody in my family skipped a beat mm-hmm. in the conversation. But I was 12. So I was just at that age where I'm starting to become aware of the world outside my family. And I noticed how nobody skipped a beat. And I thought, but this isn't what other people typically do, you know? And right. and that's when I sort of began to notice. My family's a little different, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually taught in a graduate marriage and family therapy program for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I specialized in medical family therapy, the impact of illness on people's lives. I trained physicians. I had a faculty appointment in the University of Washington School of Medicine or, or uh, family medicine department. But I always taught the human sexuality course for marriage and family therapists because it was a required course for licensure. And I was the only faculty that actually was excited to teach it, you know? So I taught it from the early nineties forward every year. Mm -hmm. And I would have my students as one of their assignments to really look at their sexual health narrative or gender identity narrative and how affection and this kind of things. And I would give them 60, 80 questions to just sort of walk them through thinking through this because we don't have comprehensive sex education in the United States. And so we have so much ignorance. And I just thought my students, to be good therapists, they need to know where their stories begin and end. 
right? Mm-hmm. And their client stories begin and end. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't have them do this, it's going to end up in their in the middle of the room with their clients. And I want them to have a clear more clarity about themselves. Well, around the year 2000, I began to notice that the stories themselves in range of what people experienced, that had not changed. But what had changed was how they described themselves in those stories. They started describing themselves as humiliated, disgusted, thinking of themselves as perverted for what they thought, for what they felt, for what they did with others, with themselves. You know, and and their amount of ignorance about what was developmentally typical as you grow up, right? You're, the curiosities you're going to have from toddler forward, they are thinking about that was they didn't they didn't know what was common and they felt bad about what was, in essence, very common. So I started to become really concerned about them concerned about what they had experienced and what had changed in life. And I didn't know what I was seeing at first. It took about three years of lots of conversations to finally realize I was seeing the first wave of students that had gotten the abstinence only education in school, which was religiously based education. Most people don't realize that, but if they go back and they look at what was happening, what, what policies we were passing, it was religiously based education. We now know it's 80% medically inaccurate, mm-hmm. even though it's still taught in many places. And some of my students, <clears throat> because I taught at a university that the undergrad was religiously based, some of my students in the grad program had also come from conservative religious backgrounds. So they had layered on top of it, right? Youth group experiences, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting because um, a lot of the women I work with have grew up in the 90s and they experienced purity culture, which is That's exactly right. what you're talking about. That's so right. keep going with the story. This no, is- absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we now understand so much more, but at the time they were just swimming in it, right? And they were breathing it. They didn't understand. They were being taught this as early as nine and 10 years old. It wasn't don't have sex before marriage or just don't have sex before marriage. It was don't think about anything sexual. Don't want anything sexual. Another just natural desire for connection and pleasure was pathologized, deeply pathologized. And they were told, if you cannot be pure of mind and heart, which was never defined, right? Then you will put your future in jeopardy, your future intimate relationships in jeopardy, your future eternity in jeopardy, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And many of these kids swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. Yes, they did. Hook, line, and sinker. And what I have found is those that are the most earnest and the most naturally anxious kids who were exposed to this also are the ones that often have symptoms that look exactly like somebody who had experienced childhood sexual abuse, right? They have pelvic pain disorders. They have erectile dysfunction. They have other sexual dysfunctions. They hate themselves. They feel like they are bad to the bone, that somehow they themselves, who they are as a person is bad, right? Have you, um, I, 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 that is super interesting. So would you consider somebody who's gone through purity culture 
to be someone who has had sexual abuse. Their symptoms absolutely mimic that. So you have to look at the symptoms and say, well, then yes. Actually, I've had some clients with uh, vaginal meniscus. Is that how it vaginal? Vaginismus. Vaginismus. Yeah. And some of them think it was due to um, their exposure to purity culture in the yeah. evangelical church in the 90s. They know absolutely how all connected. Yeah. So, yeah. And I write about that in the book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. And I, I was probably, I started writing that book in 2006 was published in 2017 and I was the first person to come out and say nobody's intending this but this is the outcome of purity culture this is what's happening in the lives of people we have to look at this because it's manifesting in people's lives in ways that are affecting their ability to do connection pleasure attachment well they feel like a fraud because who they think they are on the inside is so dark that they wear a mask. And then if somebody falls in love with them, they think, well, you don't really love me. You love my mask. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it affects people deeply. Yeah. So my question for you then is what have you seen, especially in regards to women and this, this deep shame from purity culture, because women are, responsible for men's sexual desire. That's right. Exactly. Culture. So yeah. how they dress, how they look, how they behave. Like right. what has that done to a generation of women? I would like you to first address all the women, but then I, <laughs> I want you to talk about, especially women who are not straight. Right, right, right. Um, when, so... And then I, this is part of, I go over all of this stuff sort of in detail so people can see the context in the book Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. But the sexual ethic that has been in place for thousands of years now is a sexual ethic that grew out of the fourth century, did not grow out of Jesus' ministry, grew out of the fourth century when Constantine, who was Mm -hmm. the emperor, became a Christian, could then appoint the men to be the leaders of this new church. At that particular point in history, the men were vying for political power, church power, same thing, by who could deny the body the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they could not, they had women to blame for it. Mm -hmm. So this is thousands of years old, and we are still doing it today. Mm -hmm. Just as much inside the church as outside the church in secular culture, right? Women are to blame. Men are not held accountable for what they say and do, especially in the realm of sexuality. We give them a pass. Mm-hmm. So women then grow up with, so I think we, what, what we have to understand here is women who hit their teens in the 90s. It was during a time when in the mid 80s, we, we reduced and actually withdrew most of the regulations on the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, so how we did media. Right. The same time, we began then allowing so much more violence against women on TV, in the movies, in video games, which were launching right at that time, in music videos. Mm-hmm. I we, have, we have for 
more than 40 years been different iterations and of different major organizations, including Congress, asking for the passage of laws to protect women against violence against women, because we have enough research to show that there's a correlation there, right? And we have yet to pass a law. So we've had increase in violence against women as a primary educator, right? Because pornography came on board too, the internet came on board, right? Primary educator of the public, while we don't provide education so that kids can be empowered to protect themselves, right? So women are getting a double fear message around their bodies. Absolutely. Right? So at the age of nine or 10, many women say, that was the first time I got whistled at. That's the first time somebody did something or whatever to me. Um, for, I don't, but that, I mean, just sort of out in the, in the world. Of course, there, we've got many, many, many children who are facing sexual abuse as early as five or six years old. Like, I think the most common age is six by somebody in their 20s inside their family, usually, or inside their community. So we have that. And then we have all what's happening in secular culture. And so women are feeling even more afraid to go out in public, literally, for their own safety. While we simultaneously aren't acknowledging this and we continue to support it. Mm -hmm. Right. So much so that then women start to realize I, I have to, this is, well, we can talk about, there's a whole range of things here, but often women are getting a message that they, in order to have power, they've got to create relationships with men. Correct. And, but men are dangerous. According to this, this thing, this message that they're getting, right? So now they're caught in a double bind, mm -hmm. right? I need to somehow try to adhere myself to this thing that's dangerous to me while in order to have some kind of social power. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's nothing about this is feeling safe to me. And I don't, and it must be me because I don't have a place to talk about it because nobody's talking about it. Right. Nobody does talk about anything in this country. No, no, no. <laughs> right. So if, if we now start talking about people who may have been um, assigned male at birth, but don't feel male at all, they're now noticing all of this, or we have somebody that is um, born female, sees themselves cis female, but is attracted to people who are female, right? Now that's actually on some level, while still underground, maybe in their home environment, still feels like a, maybe a safer, if I could get there, a safer person, somebody who might understand some mm -hmm. of this dilemma that I'm in, right? So mm -hmm. there's a lot to this, but shame and silence over is over all of it, while at the same time embedded in a culture that is inherently dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's not holding all genders responsible for what they say and do, period. So are you in the process of coming out later in life? Are you feeling isolated or lost, cut off from friends and family, or just trying to figure out what is the next step for you? 
Well, I have a wonderful coaching program called Lotus Group Coaching. It is for people who are female identifying, cis or trans, or non-binary folks comfortable in those spaces. And we provide emotional, spiritual, and intellectual support for people who are in the process of coming out later in life. We discuss many things in our community, but what's most important is that you have a community, a community of others who understand. Each one of the coaches in the program have come out later in life, and everybody who is a member of our program is somewhere in the process. So if you are seeking community and you want a soft place to land, go to my website, amoryzanzel.com, and book a connection call. We would love to talk to you. Can I ask you, how do you define shame? Can I give you the operational definition of sexual shame? Sure. We just came up with this through research in 2017. And this was, somebody came to me and said, I, I wanted to do my d- doctoral dissertation on religious sexual shame. But when I got into the literature, there wasn't even one operational definition of sexual shame, only shame, mm-hmm. which is, you know, so much of the work of Brene Brown has been so f- fabulous for the public, right? But sexual shame was still not being looked at. And so she did her research. And I want to read to you, for you and for your listeners, that the definition, because it is so often what we see in our offices when we are doing this work, when we're sitting with people, when we're really listening to their stories, right? So this is the work of Dr. Noel Clark in 2017. Sexual shame is a visceral feeling. So in our bodies, not just here, in our bodies, a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a belief of being abnormal, inferior, and unworthy to your core. Mm -hmm. This feeling can be internalized, right? It begins, it, it, it becomes internalized, but it also manifests in interpersonal relationships, having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. So you see right at that place of real attachment, of real vulnerability and attachment. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan in interactions with interpersonal relationships. And I'll come back to this in a second. One's culture and society then starts to play a role, right? And then a subsequent critical self-appraisal starts. So an internal critic gets going reeling these messages over and over inside of us from that, yeah, from that experience. There is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire, right? So in this last statement, we saw this in the work of Peggy Ornstein. She wrote a book called Girls and Sex. And in that book, she talked about how she interviewed 80 girls, 15 to 22, and they often were describing themselves as confident and competent in different areas of their life. 
until they got ready to go out. And then they were putting down three, four and five shots of hard liquor because they didn't know if they could keep themselves safe or if they had the right to. And the vast majority of the people she interviewed were not described themselves as non-religious or coming from non-religious homes. In this piece of research that Noel did, also the vast majority of the people that she interviewed described themselves as coming from non-religious homes. So this is so, uh, my point is this is so entrenched across our cultural experience. And I also do think that sometimes parents may reject religion, but their values are still within them. And so even though you don't grow up in a religious home, you're, you still receive those values. Yes. And those are often epigenetic, right? They've come down from generations to generations, right? Absolutely. But I want to just come back really quick to just say one thing. We talk about, um, shame as beginning in interpersonal relationships. I have come to believe in doing this work that shame, sexual shame is our first shame for the vast majority of people who grew up in the US. Mm-hmm. That is because epigenetically, people have not been given sex, sex education, come to see sexuality and development as normal and understand child development in that sense. I mean, I used to have students that would take three developmental courses and not once did they cover sexual development, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Typical in the US. You can become a therapist or a physician or a clergy member and get no sex education right. in your graduate school. Mm-hmm. So the rampant naivete in the US is pretty, pretty well, insane. Interesting. You'll find this really interesting. So first of all, I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you don't get any sexual education in divinity school because I've been there. Yeah, um, right. But I, this is really through my own self-discovery. So when I was young, in one summer when I was 14, I kissed a boy for the first time. And I had sexual play with a girl. Mm-hmm. I got naked with another girl. Sure. The... The kiss of the, with the boy got filed away as a pleasant little memory. And the, the experience with the girl, which is quite very, very normal for a young lesbian. Oh, absolutely. Super yeah. normal, got filed under shame. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I came out that I, a lot of my women that I work with do this as well. These things that we file under like, oh, I'm wrong, or, oh, this is shameful, or this is, oh, I'm guilty about that we do a reordering of those memories. And so I took that out of the shame basket and put it in, oh, that was perfectly normal. Absolutely. You know, but like it's, it's, it, 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 part of my coming out later in life has been my entangling of sexual shame because I also grew up in a very religious household, Mm -hmm. Catholic, my mother was, I don't know if you've ever heard of a Baltimore Catechism Catholic. I mean, she was born in 19, I was, she was 40 when I was born. Like sex was bad. Yeah. <laughs> so when I had my first sexual experience with a boy, it wasn't good, but I had already been acculturated to be told that it wasn't going to be good. So right. but I couldn't separate not good from 
oh, I don't really want to be with this person, but I'm supposed to be with this person because I've been told my whole life I'm yes. supposed to be with this person. I couldn't separate any of that out in, in really until the last 10 years of my life. Uh-huh. I came out and like realized because I was smart enough to know that I felt guilty about having sex without marriage. You know yes. what I mean? Yes, sure, sure. That's, so that's what I chalked it up to. And it took me a long, long time to untangle all of that. So yeah, I am like the example of sexual shame here. <laughs> but you I, know, I, one of the one of the things I'm curious about in your story is when you started experiencing desire, the that wave, that feeling, that that strong feeling. Did that early on did the wave of desire get filed in shame, and did you have to later pull it out? So like your experience at 14. I'd imagine felt a whole lot better with the girl than it did with the boy. And did that feeling have something to do? Cause there's a big, big message about desire is not okay. Um, the, probably the desire got everything was, I actually write about it in my book. It, you know, like I used to read my mother's Harold Robbins novels mm-hmm. <laughs> and I tucked it. They were in a, don't I write about shame in the book and like they was very shameful I would stand in the hallway and read it and I was only interested in the the scenes that involved women I did not care what happened to the men I just didn't care right I was very fascinated and I was little I was like 12 13 and yes my desire got filed under that was just any sexual desire was really shameful it was just shameful you know Exactly. Exactly. So I think about how 10 month old children are beginning to realize they can reach out and grab something, right? That they have control of their hands Mm -hmm. and somewhere between 10 minutes, 10 months and a year when they're getting their diaper change or they're in the tub, they discover their genitals. Mm -hmm. Like the vast majority of children are going to do this, you know, little toddlers, unless their caregiver is someone who can say, oh yeah, that's your penis or, oh yeah, that's your vulva. It's wonderful part of your body. And let's finish getting you dressed or let's finish whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless there's somebody who can along the way, keep offering explanations. So the child gets to learn about, you know, head, shoulders, knees, and toes and vulvas and penises, you know, Mm -hmm. they're um, instead what often happens to most kids is somebody slaps their hand away or gets angry, like gross, that's yucky. Don't do that. Right. And so they, they can't understand what that is. And of course they're not going to stop because they don't have the cognitive capacity to understand to stop until they're four or five. Right. And so this happens multiple times in their childhood, beginning Mm pre-verbally. And the only thing they can think is something is wrong with me. Right. It's me. I don't know what else. This is just me because I'm being curious. I'm just being me, right? And so this is starting really early. We might remember getting in trouble from playing doctor at five or six. Mm-hmm. Almost every, but, everybody I've ever worked with. <laughs> right. For doing stuff like But that. we have to understand that it has happened hundreds, if not thousands of times before that memory stuck. Mm-hmm. And that's why sexual shame is so deeply woven within us, I think it's a complex trauma because it happens year after year after year in increasingly complex ways until we can begin to talk about it and begin to understand it. 
but we ha- I think we have to appreciate how long it's been going on. Mm-hmm. So how do you start to erase the shame? Like, like, as, I mean, first of all, I'm going to go out and get your book and read because I think it'd be very helpful for the women I work with. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll love it with your background. Yeah, I mean, like, I've done a lot of this work myself. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the therapists, honestly, that I've worked with around this have really not been very good. Yeah. I, they really, I'm just going to say, they suck with women coming out later in life because they yeah. don't understand it at all. So I find that what works with my later in life community is um, the shared common humanity, that we get together, we discuss these things, and then people realize, oh, wait a minute, you thought this too? I thought I was the only one thought. That has like, group work has been life-saving for people. Yes. How do you begin to erase the shame? Yeah. You know, how do you start? Like if you're somebody who's like, oh my God, they're talking about me right now. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And how do you find somebody, if you can't do it yourself, how do you find somebody who's competent? Yeah, good question. So I'll say that the book, the Sex God Conservative Church book, is written for providers, but it's talking to the people who've experienced it. And I did it that way because I too was struggling with the lack of cultural competency that therapists had to work with people who had come from backgrounds where religion was a piece of the story, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I was hearing and seeing so many people where this was what they lived. I thought if I can make a book that helps both, you know, the person who doesn't understand it, but who's treating people and the people who've experienced it and get frustrated with their therapist who doesn't understand, you know, they can say, you read this, you do your work, and then I'll work with you kind of a thing or something, Mm -hmm. you know? But I, I think that the, the healing process is challenging, right? Because it's, again, it's a part of us. It's been a part of us for a long time. So that unwinding and taking apart takes time. But I talk about healing the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame. Mm-hmm. And I say that there are four areas that you're going to kind of want to start with working with. And it's frame, name, claim, and aim frame is get yourself a scaffolding or a frame of sexual health information. There's a ton of good books out there. There's videos that you can watch on sexual health websites that will give you education so that you can then begin to see what was mythology Mm -hmm. and what is true about your body, about whatever, you know, like just start learning and be able to, to separate out myth and um, bias from truth. So that's frame. Name is exactly what you're talking about right there when you talk about your groups. It is tell your story. Tell your story to at least one other person who's compassionate and empathic and can say, oh yeah, that's common, you know? at least one person. So I'll sometimes say to people, if you have some friends that you've begun to have some of these conversations with, go get the book and just read the book together and stop every half chapter and just talk about what you're relating to mm-hmm. of what's being said, just because you're going to find out you're not alone. When I talk to audiences around the country and I say, you know, raise your hand if you grew up in a home that it was safe to talk about bodies and sexuality and affection and 
attraction and gender identity, maybe five hands will go up in a hundred. Right. It's just so rare in our country. It's so, so rare. And so I'm like, you are, you need to know you're not alone years ago. This has probably been 15 years now. I, some students and I had been talking about this forever for a long time and they were all doing therapy and healing and growing. And, um, one day I had this thought, what if we put together a website, a lot like Dan Savage's website of it gets better. Right. Mm -hmm. And we put one together and, but it was a place where people who came from religious backgrounds and had seen how it had hurt their sexuality and their ability to do relationships had been on a healing journey. And they could talk a little bit about, this is what I grew up with and this is what I've been doing. And this is what I come to think now. And so we put together a website called thank God for sex.org. And there are videos on there. And this was just so that they could start to say, it doesn't have to be silent anymore. We've been so afraid to tell other people because, you know, we thought we would be judged, but now there's more of us. And we're finding out that we have a, we're a community of people. And I'm like, you guys represent half a percent of the country. Like we ought to put this out there somewhere. And so we did. I think telling your story is incredibly liberating, you know, mm-hmm. like you've seen in your groups, mm-hmm. you know, when you start to feel like, oh, you mean I'm, I'm normal. I've mm-hmm. always been normal. Like, wow. what? <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So that's, that's name. And then claim is learn to claim your body as good. Mm-hmm. If you get up in the morning and you are not in severe pain, right. You're able to feel relatively okay in your body. It's a good body. Mm-hmm. But we live in a culture that runs its economy on make on you feeling badly about what you look like or what you have or don't have. So it can sell more products. Mm-hmm. We live in a country that values products over people across the board, right? And so you, if you don't think of your body as good because of however it is, I'm a Swede, so I am sturdy as they come. I am always... 30 to 40 pounds over, over what, you know, you would consider normal weight, but I am so what my people look like, you know, I just, Mm -hmm. I'm right in there. And it, you need to know that your heredity shapes so much more about what's going on and how your body is and all kinds of things. And it's a good body. And I want for people that whenever the time comes that they are towards the end of their life, that they look back and see that they value their body as good. And they value that they had five senses, which, which to just enjoy life through. Right. Um, and so when people start doing these three things, getting the good information, you know, the frame, the name, the claim, what they begin to do without even realize it is they start shaping a new legacy, a new sexual health legacy that they'll pass on to the people that they love. Right. And so that you don't have to this, you don't have to pass this down anymore. <laughs> um, so. Can you give me the acronym acronym again? Yeah, it's it's healing the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame, frame, name, claim, and then aim, aim for a new legacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did that aim for the new legacy bring you to your next book? about raising shame-free children, because that sounds like a natural uh, occurrence. So 
I've never been asked that question before, but I, I would say yes, but I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And so the way it happened was I just started hearing from so many people around the globe who had read the sex, God and conservative church book and said, that's been so helpful. I feel so seen. I understand myself. I feel like I know how to heal, blah, blah. But I know I don't want to do to my kids or to the kids in my life, what was done to me, but I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And I said, I can totally do that because I've been teaching this stuff forever to physicians and therapists and whatnot. Let me put together um, a book that goes basically step-by-step, holds your hand, birth to two, two to four, four to six, six to eight, up to 18. I'm going to tell you what the typical emotional tasks are that kids are often trying to accomplish at this two-year frame, what the behavioral tasks are that they're often trying to do, the things you're going to see them doing, hear them doing, whatever, typically. And then what are the sensual, sexual, body, relational curiosities that emerge in these two years? Then I'm going to invite you to ask yourself, how will that be for you when your child begins to do X or Y, you know, discovers their genitals, walks in on you. I don't know, whatever. I mean, all the different things. Listen to what happens when you imagine that. If you can feel any place in your body where you go, I don't know what to do, or that feels yucky, or I'm, uh, I feel like, you know, anxious that I want you to just put your hand on your heart and say, oh, baby, you are so good. That is only your body telling you that you didn't get what you needed at that age. That's all. That's all that that's telling you. Mm-hmm. Now let's imagine what might you have gotten and from whom and what would you have wanted? And if you had gotten what we're suggesting here, how might life have been different for you as a toddler or as, you know, kindergartner or, you know, a grade schooler or whatever. And so we just walk them through. And at the end of every little section is a place for them to keep notes notes on their own life and notes on their kids' lives. And so it's a process of, I I say to, I say to folks, you only need to be two years ahead of your kid. That's all just two years. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you want, and, and at the end of every section, every chapter section, I say, here are the leading books for kids, the leading books for adults in this area and the top websites that you can go to. So I do all the work for you. So it's like, you don't have to have this all figured out. Go get the books, Mm -hmm. read the books, put them out for your kids, lay them around the table so that they can find them. When they pick them up, sit down and read it to them. It will, the books will give you the language. You don't have Mm -hmm. to come up with it. And you will slowly become more and more familiar as time goes on. And it'll start to feel more and more natural to you. But you are going to literally neurobiologically change up your brain in doing this process. So it sounds like part of the healing process or excuse me about working with your children regarding this is, is inner child work. Like, yeah, it sounds like you really, you have to almost reparent yourself. You do. And I actually think that's what's happening. What people are doing is they're reparenting themselves. Mm -hmm. You know um, I've had people write me and say, I don't have kids, but I decided to get your book anyway. And it has been so helpful for me to see I was normal at these different ages. And I just didn't have people in my life that knew how to 
give me what I needed. It's been very, very liberating, you know, and I'm, I mean, I think that's great. And I, I went on to do handouts for doctors, therapists, clergy, coaches that you can get on my website. That's just front and back, like two to four front and back. And it's got all that same information, you know, six to eight. And so that you can run them off. You can do whatever you want to with them. You can turn them into posters for all I care, but you can give them because these are the people I think of as our frontline workers, right? Our educators, our therapists, our pediatricians, whatever. And I know from just working in medicine that I had so many doctors that were like, I can't add one more thing. And I'm like, I got you. I'm going to give you a handout that you can say. So while they're accomplishing these tasks, there's some other things that are going on too. I want you to read this. And if you have any questions, let me know, you know? Well, I think your work is absolutely fascinating. Dr. Shermer Sellers, I could keep talking to you for a very, very long time. Um, And I really want to thank you for all the good work you're doing. It is phenomenally important. Thank you. Having worked with 80%, I did an informal poll once in my Facebook group and 80% of all women that I work with come out of conservative faith tradition. Wow. Yeah. And um, mostly, um, and it, it, it it's mostly evangelical, um, Pentecostal, and as well as Orthodox, you know, Orthodox yeah. Jewish folks and stuff like that. And I know that sexual shame plays a really huge role in running people, women especially, and men, I've met plenty of men as well who've grown up in conservative cultures, religious cultures. It prevents them from finding their full authenticity, the sexual. Exactly. And and once, like, like, once I, like for my own personal experience, once I accepted that I was queer, um, a lot of that fell away. And, um, and, and also really helped me rethink how I thought about things. So your work is incredibly important and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today. And and I want to just ask you a couple of questions. I end my pot, my podcast every time. Um, what book or movie changed your perspective in life? Oh gosh, that's a hard one to do. I'll tell you that. There was a a movie fairly recently, within the last five years, that caused a shift that I didn't even know was happening, but I can see it now. And that is a movie called, it's a documentary, and it's it's called Fantastic Fungi. Mm -hmm. So it's about mushrooms, and it's done by Paul Stamets and um, Louis Schwartzberg, I think is his last name. So... um, it's, it's created a lot of shift and change in just how I think about the earth. And then I have just finished a year long program on psychedelic assisted therapies that I'm wanting to help support therapists and physicians that are doing this. And, and at some point I'll do a clinical trial on healing religious sexual shame and trauma using MDMA probably. Yeah. Sometime in the, you know, off the, after it becomes legal, but, um, but yeah, that was a movie that, was creating a shift that I didn't even know was shifting yet, but it has been for sure huge. So, so I, I had a question of curiosity because on the form you said, um, shamanism, personal quest of communion with nature and creation. Yeah. 
And so what is that book? So that book goes right along with it. So that book is by Oscar, um, Don Oscar Miro Casada. He is a um, shaman of the, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking. Um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the tradition, but it's an Andes tradition. And, um, and that book has been one that I've been diving into. Now I had a mentor who shaped my life in the therapy that I was doing a, quite a lot for about a decade. And she died in 2018 and Don Oscar was her shaman. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so I learned a lot from her and now I've since started studying more of the stuff that he's doing. And you can learn more about it at the heart of the healer.org you can mm-hmm. learn about, um, the tradition and all about it, but there, there, I, Ancient wisdoms are really where we ought to be spending our time because they've been right all along and patriarchy and capitalism has taken us away from what actually nourishes our health and our wellness, you know, from inside to outside. And we're now destroying that both inside and outside. And we have been. Well, it nurtures our humanity. Yes. That's what it nurtures. I was thinking about when you were talking about our bodies and, um, you know, how women with their bodies and how it's done to fund capitalism. <laughs> and and, it, and I, I really appreciate what you are saying about the ancient wisdom. And I had my first experience with the shaman uh, about a year or two ago, and it was actually quite an interesting experience. And she really, really helped me heal from something. Like, wow. like a hundred percent now, uh, like I'm surprised I'm saying that, but she really did because yeah. you now it was just one specific incident in my life. And since then I have let it go, it, you know, I've let it go. so it was really powerful. Yes. How would you describe your life today? Um, quieter than it used to be. Mm-hmm. We have four kids and they're all grown, um, and gone. And, um, and I have two granddaughters. So yeah, it's quieter. There's a lot of um, time for um, and and thought that's going into how how to continue to support good work in the world. And I think I have a even deeper investment now that there I've got two granddaughters, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's quiet and it's it's. I feel very grateful well, for the people I- in my life. I would like to thank you very much for coming on the show today, Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. Um, her books are Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. Oh, that's not the that's not the subtitle. It is Dr. Sellers' book is Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. And her latest book is Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident, Confident Kids, and Heal Your Shame Too. So thank you so much for just opening a little tidbit of this conversation today. Oh, thank you so much, Emery. It was a joy to be with you. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, 
visit annemariezanzel.com.